0: Hi, ladies. Thank you for being leaders in your Bible study groups. Get your green highlighter and green pen so that you can underline some important statements and make notes to help you lead ladies in a meaningful discussion of God's Word. Let's delight in studying and sharing the precious words of the Lord to us. This is the Leader's Guide for Believe in Me, Luke 22-24 and I'll be going over lessons two and three. I'm starting on page 20. Leaders, these are two full lessons, I think. So be careful not to get bogged down in the first pages of lesson one. And and just keep in mind, you need to keep moving. We're going to consider in lesson two, the Passover and the Pretender. Under the cross, under in the first italicized paragraph in the middle, I would start with this. Passover is a happy yearly event. How sad it is that at the best time of the year, the worst crime of history was committed. So we see that Luke mentions the Passover several times, and you were to note what was stated in these verses. So maybe go around your circle, and ladies can pass if they don't have the answer there. But I feel like these are pretty easy to answer. Luke 22 1, it was the festival of unleavened bread. It's called the Passover, and it was drawing near. Luke 22 7, the day of unleavened bread came, so it arrived. The day, it, it, it was time when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Luke 22 8 and 13, Jesus sent Peter and John to prepare the Passover meal for us. That's all the disciples, Jesus and all the disciples. And Peter and John went and did as Jesus told them. And he, they found everything as he said it would be. Luke twenty-two fifteen 15 says, Jesus fervently desired to eat this Passover with them before he suffered. So we're just seeing that Luke is using the word Passover. This is where this is the setting. And we're going to go over more details, but we're focusing on the concept of Passover right now. There's a summary of the Passover at the top of page 21. You don't need to read all that. Just read the last sentence. Passover is the name given to what the Israelites experienced when the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, came upon all Egypt. This was a life-changing event. And then read the last sentence, our last two sentences. The Egyptians pressured the Israelites to leave the country, and this was the moment of the Exodus. They pressured the Israelites to leave because of all the plagues, but the, the last one, the death of their firstborn. Now, Ask the question, how does Exodus 12, 41-42 describe this moment, the Passover? At the end of 430 years, all of the Lord's divisions went out from the land of Egypt. And in verse 42, the night of the vigil, uh, the Passover is a night of vigil in honor of the Lord, because he would bring them out. And this same night is in honor of the lord a night vigil for all israelites throughout the generations so that's describing the original vigil the night of vigil to begin with and then saying that the lord has prescribed that every year the israelites would have this night vigil again with the celebration of the passover as they Honor the Lord. I loved seeing that in these verses. This is a vigil in honor of the Lord. Um, Okay. Then we just noted it's reasonable to assume that Jesus always attended the yearly Passover festival in Jerusalem, but this one would be different from every one before. According to Luke 22, 2 through 6, what was happening behind the scenes and who wanted what you can let anybody answer these questions the chief priests and scribes wanted a way to put Jesus to death. they were afraid of the people. what does I mean that the, the um, chief priests and scribes wanted to put Jesus to death but they were trying to figure out how to kill Jesus, when the crowds loved him, so they were afraid of the people getting upset at Jesus' death. Judas wanted to hand Jesus over to the chief priests and um, who the chief priests and scribes. He wanted to betray Jesus and Judas was motivated by Satan who had entered him and apparently silver, money greed. The plan agreed upon by the chief priests and Judas was to betray Jesus when the crowd was not present. So we can see how all of that has come together. And then leaders, there's a summary of this in the box. And if you would read the last couple of phrases and sentences, the leadership is conspiring to rob Jesus of his very life. But the people are flocking to him, so there's currently no good way to get him without causing major turmoil. And the chief priests and scribes, the leaders of Jerusalem, the leaders of the Jews, knew that causing turmoil was um, really big trouble for Jews under Roman rule, so they didn't want to cause turmoil. Let's turn the page, top of page 22. We're thinking a little bit about Judas, and he is an important reminder to us today. He's an example of an insider who is really not an insider. He reminds us that not everyone closely tied to Jesus really knows him. So we are going to look at who really knows Jesus? And how do you really know him? There's only one biblical definition of a Christian, which is based on the biblical definition of the gospel and salvation. So that's what we're focusing on the rest of this page. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, what is the gospel? Three points. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried in He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. There's a lot more information in each one of those points because what's described here is uh, not something that a normal man can do for us. Here's something that is going to be showing up throughout this workbook, this question. What do you believe? So, leaders, please just draw attention to this. Um, It it will show up in this special font every now and then. And it will show up again in this lesson or the next lesson. And it's an opportunity for you to reflect on truths that we've been studying and to express your understanding of them. It's a place to make a declaration of faith, to put your beliefs into your own words, To offer praise to Jesus. Basically, this is a place to make a response of heart and mind. It might be just your heart sometimes. It might be your mind. It might be both. Um, So I want you to encourage your ladies to write something down when they come to this question. Write something down. Express your belief. In response to what we've been studying the questions will be um, given a specific topic for you to respond to so here is an example of the first one what do you believe about the gospel you've already seen what how Paul explained it so now what do you believe about it and leaders just pause give ladies opportunity to share, and if everybody is just not answering, then you can go first, but say you'll go first and someone else can share after you. But Give them a chance to speak first, and they may, if you have more ladies talk and you don't get a chance to talk, that's okay too. Here's what I said. (laughs) I believe all of it, uh, exactly as stated, those points, And I believe it's true. It happened and it brought about a supernatural, spiritual, eternal victory and rescue and change in every person who believes it. I believe this gospel was God's plan. It was brought about by Jesus' obedience. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's an act of love and grace and mercy. And I'm so thankful for it. Um, Now, we're staying on the topic of salvation, and that's what this next question is. Another verse to help examine your relationship with Jesus so that you'll be a true insider, one who truly knows Jesus. This is like Judas didn't know him, but this is how you can test yourself and then ask others and give them an assurance of salvation. First um, John 5 11 through 13 what is eternal life based on these verses? God has given us eternal life. this life is in his Son. the one who has the Son has life. Um, we are to believe in the name of the Son of God and know this way. That's how we know that we have eternal life. What does the Holy Spirit do in a believer according to Romans 8 9 through 11. I answered it this way. (laughs) The Spirit lives in me. He is the Spirit of Christ living in me, making me belong to Jesus. The Spirit gives me life, and the Spirit will raise me up, giving me eternal life. Like, raise up my mortal body to immortality. One day. Rapture day. Now, the bottom of page 22 has sentences that will be a transition to the question at the top of the next page, so you need to read them. When someone says they know Jesus, please ask them to tell you more about him. Do they know him as he truly is, according to Scripture and his life? He is God. Um, Judas, now at the top of page 23, Judas did not know Jesus as he could have. He did not believe in him for eternal life, but Jesus knew who Judas was. How did he describe Judas in John 6, 70-71? Jesus chose Judas, but knew that one of you is the devil. So Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. Now it's time for consideration of demon possession. I wrote some explanations there, but... Just to get into the discussion, read the last sentence of the big paragraph. When studied thoroughly, every example in Scripture of demon possession will be found to occur in someone who is not a true believer. How does 2 Corinthians 6, 14-18 explain that a believer who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit cannot also have an evil spirit dwelling within them? And Paul gives us a comparison and, and some logic, really, but it's a spiritual truth. There is no partnership between righteousness and lawlessness. There is no fellowship between light and darkness. There's no agreement between Christ and Belial. And Belial is a name for the devil. We, in Christ, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we're a sanctuary of God. And there is no way for both the Holy... This is now me summarizing all of this. There's no way for both the Holy Spirit and the evil spirit to live in me. Paul also says from all this, come out from among them and be separate because of who you are. The next question, uh, again, you're just asking these questions and anybody can answer them. I don't think that you should be going around the circle because ladies might not be comfortable to be like put on the spot to answer it. So just open it up for anybody to answer. How are believers protected against demon invasion? Internal possessive invasion. That's what I'm talking about. And this is according to 2 Corinthians 1, 21, 22 and Ephesians 4, 30. Ah, we are protected because 1 Corinthians, God strengthens us. He has anointed us. He has sealed us giving us he has given us his Holy Spirit as a down payment in our hearts that's salvation (laughs) you have the Holy Spirit in you and he is not gonna let a demon get in Ephesians says the same thing I have been sealed by God's Holy Spirit for the day of redemption sealing is that guarantee is protection Do the truths of 1 John 4, 4 and 1 John 5.18 assure you that a believer cannot be demon-possessed. Um, so demon possession, I called it demon invasion there, uh, evil spirit dwelling within. This is all the same language. I'm going to talk about the oppression and spiritual warfare on the next page. Which they will know by the time that they've answered these questions. Uh, so, what is the answer to the question at the bottom page 23? Um, from 1 John 4.4. 4. As a child of God, I am, I have life from God. I am from God. And I have conquered them, which is referring back to the spirits and of the Antichrist and um, evil spirits in verses 2 and 3. That... And greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. That's a key there. (laughs) Greater is he who is in me. Who's in me? Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, Spirit of Jesus. Greater than he who is in the world. That's Satan. And from 518, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. The The one born of God is kept by God, and the evil one does not touch him. Um, The one born of God does not sin. Just FYI, the verb tense there is a present tense, meaning ongoing. It does not mean that a Christian is not able to sin. We are able to sin, but with the Holy Spirit, we are to be convicted and respond to the Holy Spirit and repent of that sin and not go on living in sin. So the, the tense there in 518 is the one who has been born of God doesn't keep on sinning a lifestyle of habitual sin. Um, but the key statement here is the evil one does not touch him. This is the emphasis that I am making here is the evil one cannot move inside. And there's a big box on page 24 to talk more about this. You are free, leaders, to emphasize something in there if you want to or not. Or you could ask if anybody wants to comment on anything in the box. You still have another lesson we're going to go through, so this is the territory where you really probably should be tuned in to how much time you've got left and don't get bogged down on this topic. You, If you are taking a lot of time, because I realize that this could stir up questions and comments, be careful that the comments are, and information is Bible-based, not stories about things outside Scripture. Let's keep our answers based on the truth of what we have in our hands. And at the bottom half of page 24, we have warnings in the New Testament to watch out for those who enter our groups with the intent to deceive. So it's important to remember, don't be naive, don't be gullible, be aware, be discerning. Watch out for deception. It's everywhere. Oh, it, it's just, it's, it's overwhelming how much deception there is. So Romans, 2 Corinthians, and 2 Timothy have a lot of information. If you got time, go through it all. You may need summaries. This would be a place where you might be able to save time right here. So I'm going to give you the full answer that I have just for what it's worth. Romans 16, 17, and 18. Descriptions of troublemakers and warnings. All right. Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. Who is trying to um, cause trouble, start a fight, keep a fight going? That's a problem. Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. Contrary to the teaching you learned, turn away from them. They are slaves of their own appetites. They deceive unsuspecting hearts by their smooth and flattering speech. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen 13-15 says that there are false apostles, deceitful workers. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan's servants may disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And here, Satan's servants, um, I will have to double check, but I think that what Paul is saying is, like false apostles are basically servants of Satan. So they're disguising disguising themselves as uh, preachers, church leaders. 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 6. What a long description. I actually just could not write all of it. (laughs) But there are men, men and women, who will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. That one really stood out to me. So sad. It's like, you can talk to these people, but they are irreconcilable. They are not going to listen. Pray for them. They are malicious gossips, without self-control. They are brutal, haters of good, and, I, and at this point I had to write etc. Um it's rough. It's so sad. All right. Be aware. That's the warning. Don't be deceived. And now consider ourselves at the top of page 25. We should take this opportunity to note what our own behavior and attitude should be toward Jesus. What do the following verses instruct us to do? John 15, 5. Well, many of you know that this book is a sequel to John 14, 15, and 16, the Abide in Me study, so let's just have a bit of a reminder what we learned from John 15, 5. We are to know that Jesus is the vine. I am a branch. I am to abide in him and bear much fruit because apart from Christ, I can do nothing. So um, cling to Jesus, abide in him, stay. Know that he is staying with me. All that um, hopefully is coming to mind and knowing that the Holy Spirit has been given to me that I can be connected to um, the vine. He's dwelling in me, and I am dwelling in him. Philippians 3, 8 through 12. Wonderful. We are to count everything as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And we should want to be found in Christ, not having righteousness of my own, which is derived from the law, but righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death. Um, I'm I'm pausing thinking of what do I even mean when I say that? And um, he was obedient and he loved others and he was, Jesus was worshiping God and Looking forward to the joy set before him. All these things were what was going on in his death. So this is to be my perspective and attitude as well. And I summarized the rest of what Paul said by saying, press on. So as we come to the end of this lesson, a bit of a summary of it is we've seen unfathomable hatred, betrayal, and evil against Jesus, and we've looked at how our hearts and lives are to respond to Jesus. I hope this prompts you to cling to him even more. And now in the next lesson, what Jesus did for us should also prompt us to cling to him even more. We are going to look at the new covenant sacrifice and after working through this lesson and then coming back to it again this title is more meaningful and stands out to me more now like i kind of just i mean uh, i did, almost didn't notice it to begin with but the new covenant sacrifice that's jesus in my introduction here, at the bottom of page 25, you can highlight a couple of things. We've learned that Passover was a time of remembering and celebrating Israel's deliverance out of Egypt. let skip to the next um, sentence at the bottom of the page. The disciples didn't realize it at the time of this Passover, but they were about to experience an even greater deliverance than the Israelites did. So here we go with lesson three. I'm at the top of page 26, and um, we started with some fill in the blanks. Ask for one lady to read both sentences and, and answer fill in the blanks for both. Luke 22:2 and Luke 22:7. The chief priests and scribes sought a way. To kill Jesus, a way to put him to death, for they feared the people. Luke twenty-two seven. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So we, you might mention this, leaders. We are emphasizing two key words, and we looked them up, and ask one person to give you the definition of both of these. And both of these times, I'm trying to save a little bit of time by just asking one person to do the first reading, and then one person to do these two words. Kill is the Greek word anereo. The definition is to take up, take away violently, to abolish, to murder, put to death, slay, kill. This is an active verb. Kill, murder, usually in a violent way. Sacrifice is the Greek word thuo. The Greek definition properly is to rush, breathe hard, blow smoke. That's interesting, but um, by implication, it is to sacrifice by fire. So we can really see this uh, the smoke part of it. Implication to sacrifice by fire. It also can mean um, kill, slay. And what you see then highlighting in the italicized uh, paragraph these two verses and verb choices are two factual events that were not a coincidence the jewish leadership planned an execution wanted to kill him the lord planned a sacrifice both are death but they are different motives Leaders, I think that you should just state what's at the bottom of the page here rather than ask these as questions. Again, I'm trying to save some time, and these are pretty simple. So just um, just state them. That John one twenty nine, Jesus, Jesus is described in John one twenty nine as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and Jesus is described in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 as Christ our Passover who has been sacrificed. You're still um, reading and moving things along at the top of page 27. Then came the day of unleavened bread. It was time to make preparations to celebrate the Passover. Peter and John were sent to get everything ready. So now just ask the question. You were to read Luke 22, 7 through 14 and um, say what is interesting or surprising to you about this instruction. Let's hear several answers from ladies. There's not really a right and wrong answer here. What was interesting or surprising to you? Quite a few things to me. It's always been interesting. You're going to find a man carrying a water jug. Okay. It's like a mess, like a scavenger hunt. It seems to be mysterious instructions. That's how I've always <laughs> come across this passage. Uh, well... Jesus knew that Peter and John would find this water boy. He knew that. It was planned. Okay. And then Jesus also said, ask him, where? Um, where's the room? I just found that a little bit funny. But I guess that the, uh, Peter and John had to ask where for their own sake. Maybe that was the code that had been set up. Like, hey, keeper of the house, put that water boy out there. And when two guys come and ask him, where's the room that the teacher's going to have the last supper or Passover? Um, maybe that was the, the secret code. I also found it interesting that Peter and John are the ones who were sent they are the leaders. They are part of the intimate three front disciples set. Um, they were trustworthy. So there could be a lot of things that were um, interesting, surprising, confusing. We're just getting started talking about this so we can think about it. And as we read and thought about it, I gave you some um, description of the room And then the end was, because Jesus privately made plans ahead of time, Judas didn't know the location when he conspired with the chief priests. Ah, now I understand all this a little bit better. Luke doesn't tell us about the food or the room decor, but he emphasizes the brand new declarations made by Jesus. What was Jesus' attitude about this particular Passover, and why did he have this attitude, according to Luke twenty-two, fifteen 15 through 18? So we're looking for two answers here, and just make sure you, you get the details. Uh, he fervently, Jesus fervently desired to eat this Passover before he suffered. And Jesus said, I will not eat the Passover again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So there's eating and drinking emphasized here. That stood out to me. And he repeats himself regarding the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. It's both of these things. Leaders, I think it will be helpful if you just state what's going on with Ezekiel. And when your ladies answer about the kingdom of God you can say, the kingdom of God will come during the millennial kingdom. Jesus will reign. <clears throat> the temple will be rebuilt. This is described in Ezekiel 40 through 48. And Ezekiel 45, 21 says that the Passover will happen during that time. So, I'm um, I, I'm a, I want you to help them understand why we went to Ezekiel. I hope you understand that whole concept. And I'm looking to save a little time by you stating it. Now let's go to page 28. And we're going to observe the Last Supper, the First Communion. Note the details regarding Jesus' actions in this chart. So let's get three ladies one at a time, and just go across horizontally. Um, someone tell us what happened in luke twenty two, seventeen and eighteen. Jesus took the cup and they might say, after giving thanks, Jesus declared, "From now on, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And what was the instruction there? Take this and share it among yourselves. So that was the first cup. Um, Second lady, luke twenty two nineteen, Jesus took the bread. He gave thanks. He broke it and gave it to them. I added that under the action there. It, they might not have done that. That's fine. Um, the declaration was, this is my body, which is given for you. And the instruction was, do this in remembrance of me. The third row, Luke twenty-two twenty. 20. He took the cup after supper. So this is a different cup. And he does not give, does he? Uh... Sorry, just going to the declaration. This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. It is shed for you. This is not what they would have expected to hear because that's not in the um, Exodus Passover description. The cups symbolized other things. Well, they, uh, from the original Exodus But that original exodus was a preview of the true salvation deliverance that Jesus provides. So here's the real Passover happening, um, fulfilled by Jesus. This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. It is shed for you. And what's the instruction? Well, there was nothing specific said, but based on what we've seen previously, Take it, share it among yourselves. Do this in remembrance of me. I think that that is what I'm saying, that seeing what we see Jesus did, we're going to apply that into the instruction. And we know from the rest of our communion observance that that's what happens. So Jesus' actions were not surprising because the Passover meal always included sharing wine and bread, but his declarations and instructions were completely different. And you can go to the top of the page there uh, after that statement. This was no ordinary Passover. Jesus was doing something new. And now we're going to look at the promises of the new covenant. According to these verses, I think you could even call on ladies or go around the circle to um, answer these because this is, um, there's a lot here in each of these passages, but it's also pretty straightforward. Jeremiah 31 31 through 34 says that it's a new covenant, not like the covenant made with the ancestors. It is made with the house of Israel, and God says, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. They will all know me. I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. You may want to get some bullet points to emphasize uh, certain details when a lady has shared her answer. Jeremiah 32, 37 through 41, I'm about to gather them from all the lands where I banished them. I will return them to this place, make them live in safety. I will give them one heart, one way, and make an everlasting covenant. And that's why this one is um, why I've brought attention, brought your attention to this passage. It doesn't say, this is the new covenant. The new covenant is an everlasting covenant. And you see, uh, God says, I'll give them one heart, one way. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. These match the rest of these passages. So this is a more comprehensive review of all that the new covenant offers us. So I will put, I love this. I will put the fear of God in their hearts so they don't turn away, and I will take delight in them. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28, God says he will sprinkle us with clean water, cleanse from impurities, give us a new heart, put a new spirit within us, place, he's saying all this to Israel, so he's saying you, I'm now saying us because I have experienced this, he said I will place my spirit in you and cause you to follow my statutes and then you will live in the land I gave to your fathers. That part is very clearly specifically to Israel because I am not, I mean, I could move to Israel, but that's not required of me. Um, Ezekiel 37, 26 and 27. I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. That's another connection to the Jeremiah And I will set my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. These are glorious promises of a wonderful, intimate relationship with the Lord. And they would be given. The promises will be delivered through the blood of Jesus. Which is why he is the new covenant sacrifice. And That's what we're going to look at now. In Bible times, a covenant was sealed, agreed upon with a sacrifice, with blood and death. So we see Moses talking about this at the top of page 30. What did he do and say in Exodus 24, 8? He took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you. With that as a backdrop, we look again at what Jesus said in Luke 22, 20. This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. It is shed for you. So even though Jesus is saying something new, the Jews, Peter, John, the disciples, they had an understanding of covenant sacrifice, blood of the covenant they might have been wide-eyed at jesus words but there was a um, a background upon which they could gain understanding of what jesus was saying and now we are looking at this um, sacrifice that jesus made of himself and in the um, second paragraph In the middle here, it says Jesus was interceding between God and man, and he was providing the guarantee of fulfillment of the contracted obligation. The contracted obligation was the covenant God made, and Jesus is providing the guarantee of fulfillment. Like, okay, it's happening. God's carrying out his obligation now. Note what Jesus has done according to the following verses. In Hebrews 8.6, my summary, he has obtained a more excellent ministry. He's the mediator of a better covenant, enacted on better promises. And those better promises, that better covenant is all what we just talked about, those details on the previous page from Jeremiah and Ezekiel. In Hebrews 9.13-15, it says the blood of Christ cleanses our consciences, from dead works to serve the living God. And Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, the new covenant. Check your time. And depending on your time, you could read and talk about this next paragraph. Everything that we're studying is rich with background and doctrine and application. Luke twenty-two fourteen 14 through 20 is based on the Passover festival. The exodus, sacrifices and blood, the Mosaic covenant, the new covenant, promises to Israel, <laughs> promises of the future messianic kingdom. I mean, There's a lot there and it, you may have talked about it along the way. You may not have time to talk about it, but if you've got time and you want to, you could say something like, you could read it and you could say, is this new to anyone or does anyone have comments or reactions to this Statement, this overview. Sometimes we're so stuck in the New Testament. And we are so uh, aware of only what goes on. Like it church, communion, communion service. That these things may not be. Well, ladies just might not be aware of these things. This background. If you don't want to go there, don't go there. But I hope you will have time at the bottom of page 30 to consider and share what do you believe. Basically here, what is your response to this lesson and the new covenant sacrifice that Jesus made? Um, the way I ask the question is very specifically prompting um, really salvation. But you can enlarge it for your groups if you know that they are um, true believers. So you also see that there was an opportunity for anyone who has not come to understand who Jesus is as the new covenant sacrifice, as their Savior, that they can receive forgiveness through his blood. So I'm thankful for what he did. And I said, thank you, Jesus, for your body and your blood, for your love and your sacrifice. And um, we, we've seen him talk about his blood and his body, his sacrifice here. And now we're going to get into um, more and more of how he carried that out in the next lessons. I know mm-hmm. you know it, but just seeing it up close, in depth, slowly meditating on it. It is, um, I don't know if there are words to describe. I want to describe it. Um, Profound and amazing. I'll probably say those over and over again. Well, thanks for your leadership through these two lessons, and um, I look forward to more. Thanks again. That's all.